All right, welcome to another episode of The Bible Guys. My name is Rick Kleinert. I am joined with Jerry Hollinger. Jerry, say hi to the crowd. Hey, everybody. Hey, Rick. All right. Uh, Jerry, today's question, um, I've actually thought to myself, how have we not covered this question? This, this question is in every, every book that could ever be written on ways people have misinterpreted passages. This is probably one of the most commonly misunderstood passages. Uh, right after Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through, through Christ. Um, it's Revelation 3.20. Uh, Revelation 3.20, and I have it here in the NET where Jesus says, listen, I'm standing at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into his home and share a meal with him and he with me. So that's the NET's translation of that. Of course, most of us know the, tra- the passage or it's been translated as, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and share a meal. So it's the, it's commonly sought, seen as the evangelistic sermon left hook you know this is it jesus standing at the door of your heart he's knocking if you let him in he'll come in and so let's tackle this passage today jerry yeah the this it's important to deal with this because when this verse is misinterpreted it really affects the entire doctrine of salvation and that should be a concern to us and i will add as we get into this I, I get a little I get a little nervous when the book of Revelation is discussed because years ago I pastored a church before I started teaching. And probably the worst experience I had in that church was related to Revelation. This like this was the closest I came to a demon-possessed person as far as relating to them. Christians, for some reason, get so uptight when it comes to Revelation. And it's like they just fly off the handle with stuff. In fact, well, I better not go into details here, but I was thinking of the Exorcist movie. Um, this individual reminded me of, the, um, of Linda Blair. But anyway, it was, it was not a comfortable situation. So just so you're aware, I'm a little bit nervous as we discuss this. You just put a horrible image in my head because I'm just, I'm picturing. It was, about that, it was about that bad. Oh, man. Yeah, I agree. I think people, um, I think I've, any conflict, I think sometimes when people find out you're a pastor or you're a Bible teacher or prof, immediately the question, you can kind of see their wheels working and they'll even say, well, what's your view on Revelation? It's the yeah. last, I just want to kind of go, it's the last book of the Bible. That's my opinion. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's held by many, but that's my opinion. Um, just to kind of diffuse it, because that's how I do stressful situations. I try to go with comedy. Um, but, you know, it, you're right. It is the, everybody's got a binder. Um, everybody's got a, a different viewpoint on it. And, um, and what I found sometimes is, depending on the, the time period in which we're in, certain characters or certain um, illusions and images in Revelation are always whatever's happening in that culture whatever's happening right. right now in the world. So, you know, um, during the time of the Cold War, oh man, we, it, it, was, it was communism. And then during, you know, ap- around after 9-11, it was Islam was the, the, the villain that takes those images. Um, yeah. And it's just every 
generation has who who is their main villain, and that's usually kind of put into the text um, in a reading of it. And so, yeah, I would agree. I think there is some there comes some fear and trepidation with with the Book of Revelation. Yeah, I agree. Maybe we um, we'll just start with uh, Revelation three twenty occurs in that seventh letter to the churches. Maybe I'll just start with a word about structure of the letter. I think we're in a, of the letters. I think we're in agreement that the majority of the book of Revelation is futuristic in nature from our perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there are parts early on that I think are historical. And so when we look at these uh, seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3, uh, I think these are referencing letters to historic churches that existed in first century Asia Minor. And I really don't see anything beyond that. And as you look at each individual letter, what's of interest is that generally, not exclusively, but generally there'll be like a, a, a commendation in the letter. There'll then be a word of rebuke or condemnation. There'll then be a call to repentance. And there will then be a promise to the one who who does repent and who does overcome, as the letter talks about. But what's interesting, when we get to this seventh letter, I believe this is the only letter where there is not a word of commendation. Yeah, that's right. Jesus, the Lord of the church, I mean, he just dives right in and nails them uh, for their problematic areas. Yeah. I do. I agree. I believe these are literal churches. These were churches that historically existed, um, who who John is writing to, and Jesus is speaking these words to. Um, I I don't see them as representative of the, the various time eras of the church. Um, so a lot of people say we're living in the Laodicean church. I'm like, well, yeah. I don't think that's what's happening. I think this was an actual church. Um, and so, and your 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 point you just made that this was the only church that nothing positive was said. Um, he knows their works. And um, specifically, I'm going to pull this one out here. There's a lot going on here. So let me just give one. This wasn't even a topic of the question, but here's another part of this Laodicean letter that I've heard misunderstood, where he says um, in verse 15 of chapter three, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. And you have, you've heard it. I've heard it. This is, Jesus doesn't want a lukewarm Christian. Either guy, he wants you on fire for him or not at all. He can't, he can't stand lukewarm. That's not what's being said in that passage. You know, he's making a play on the culture that's happening, the the geography. Uh Um, Laodicea was situated between um, Heropolis, which was known for its hot springs Mm-hmm. And Colossi, which is known for its cool water, refreshing water. And the hot springs were soothing. People traveled miles to soak in those hot baths for, for various ailments. It was soothing. It was healing. The cold water was refreshing, but it all trickled into Laodicea where they had the worst water. Mm-hmm. So what he's saying is, hey, you're not healing anyone. You're not soothing anyone. You're not refreshing anyone. You're just gross water. Yeah. And- yeah. He's just saying you're useless. Right. Just like, unlike the, the other extremes are useful, but, but you're, use, you're useless. And he gets really graphic here. 
He says, mm -hmm. I'm about ready to, to vomit you out of my mouth. I mean, he is utterly disgusted with them. And um, I don't think that's a reference, as, as we'll get into, I don't think that's a reference to them losing their salvation. I think he's just disgusted at their state. And, you know, something that, that came to me as you were talking was this church was one of the wealthiest churches and quite possibly one of the largest. And those kinds of things per se are not necessarily important to God. Right. Um, it's are you useful? And because of their wealth, they had just come into this self-sufficient attitude where they didn't think they needed God. Right. In verse, in verse 17, he says that. He goes, because you say, I am rich and have acquired great wealth and need nothing, but do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Take my advice and buy gold from me, refine my fire so you can become rich. Buy from me white clothing so you become clothed and your shameful nakedness will not be exposed. And buy eye salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Um, and then he used that phrase, all those I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. So what he's doing is setting up for this phrase in verse 20. Um, he's telling them, you, you think you're okay, yep. but you are missing it. And, and a neat point here is he mentions that I salve in verse uh, 18, you know, Laodicea had that powder. I'm not sure off the top of my head what the name was, but there was a powder they would use to make an eye salve that was supposed to be able to kill, I believe cataracts was the, uh, what most people believe it was. But he says, hey, look, guys, you're exporting things. Um, people come to you for eye salve, whatever. Um, but man, you're really, you're exporting it. You're, you're exporting eye salve, but you're really blind. And so it's kind of a play here, what Jesus is saying. You're really, he says, guys, it's almost like he's seeing the irony of it. You know, you, you guys think you're wealthy, you're, you're exporting these goods that help people see, but you can't see, and you're missing the point. Your, uh, your comments leading up to verse 20, I think, are really important because one of the, the debates when we come to verse 20 is I think a lot of people just assume this is talking about salvation, that Jesus is standing at the door of their hearts, and he's wanting to come in and, and save them. And yet, as you point out, the issue is not their salvation. The issue is they need to repent of their, of their problems. In fact, right before this, he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And so this is not a call to salvation. Rather, I, I would argue he, he's calling this self-sufficient, arrogant church to repent, or God's going to come to them in judgment. So I think you, the way you've led up to it perfectly contextually shows what's going to be seen in verse 20. Yeah, and so the opening of the door um, is their collective, the local, that local church in Laosia, their collective repentance. What's being said here is not Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart and you let him in. No, Jesus is knocking on the door of this church, wanting to be a part of it, and they have shut the door on Jesus. Which, yep. So really, this passage is more about how a local church can, get, can lose sight of the purpose of the local church and in their, their, their beliefs and their own wealth, their own talents, their own gifts, their own abilities. They have missed 
the purpose or they've missed the real power, I guess you'd say, that in the local church, which is Christ's present among the members. Yeah, so he's basically called, asking, look, look, I want to be a part of your fellowship. And this is a fellowship text. I mean, eating and dining are, are typically pictures of, of intimate fellowship. And one of my concerns, I mean, we can come back to this church issue, but one of my concerns beyond that is when we apply this passage to salvation, it causes us to misunderstand what salvation actually is. And I think this has kind of run its course. People have been pointing this out for quite a while. But salvation has nothing to do with Jesus changing locales. Um, now he's out, now he's in, and this is it, is it too strong to call it heresy to say that salvation is asking Jesus into your heart? I mean, the Bible never uses those phrases. It never uses those kind, kinds of pictures. And the, um, the, the verb and preposition here does not have the idea of come into. I'm really surprised the NET translates it that way. It really has the idea of come toward. Mm -hmm. And the preposition pros used here um, I think the entire construction, a pros is used eight times in the New Testament, and it never has the idea of going into something. So Jesus is wanting to come toward the church that has excluded him, and he wants to re-engage in fellowship with them so that he can use them in the world and so that they can be useful instead of useless, as he said at the beginning. So you know, there's really a lot at stake here. Mm -hmm. As you said, the nature of the church, but then also the nature of salvation and how we understand it is in view. Yeah. So this passage, I think, we is better understood, again, as we're talking about to a local church rather than individual Christians. So you and I both don't make claims of this, but we, because we are Bible guys, we are we have to obviously care about what he commands in scripture for, for things and specifically a local church. Um, you being a pastor um, in the past and me currently being a pastor, um, we both would say we're church guys. We, we love the church. Um, I've told people I'm, I'm not a, I don't love the church because I'm a pastor. I'm actually a pastor because I love the church. And so um, when we talk about this, I know our, uh, Tom Rayner has written several books on this. You've got his book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church. What does a church that is in decline look like or a church that is almost gone look like? Um, and he, one of the big things he says in that book, if you've read it, is it's, it's a shift from an outward to an inward focus. And that inward focus is characterized by pride, um, holding on to our traditions more than holding on to the gospel, um, more about are self-serving rather than serving others. And so I, I see that in this church at Laodicea. They, they think they're okay. Um, they even have, I mean, I'm reading this and, and they're, they're probably their budget line item looks good. I was just thinking the same thing. Yeah. Their budget line item looks yeah. good. Yeah. Um, they probably, they might even have a lot of people on doors. Mm -hmm. um, but just because you look healthy doesn't mean you are healthy. And mm -hmm. That is what I'm seeing because Jesus is saying, look, you look healthy, but you've got a cancer. 
you're you're dying. You just don't realize it. You're just a really pretty tune, and it's not going to go well for you if you don't repent. Yeah, let me throw out a comment here that could be misunderstood, but I'm willing to take that risk. I know often I've been at conferences and in chapels, and sometimes the the speaker was a pastor, and he would be introduced as, oh, he's got this, um, you know, they run X hundred or thousands of people on Sundays and all this kind of stuff. And when he started the church, it had 20 people, and now it has 2,000. And that might be wonderful, but, you know, I'm always a little bit suspicious at those kinds of stories. Uh, Sometimes God is pleased to numerically bless a church. Sometimes God is pleased to do that quickly, but I don't think often that's the case. And if somebody comes in and their big claim to fame is how big their church is, I begin to be a little bit suspicious of how they got everything that big so quickly. And it's okay to have a small church. And I think sometimes people feel guilty. Oh, I've been pastoring this church and they're doing their best to follow scripture. They're doing their best to try to form the church the way the Bible talks about and yet it's just not growing much. And really that, in a sense, is God's business if we're doing our part. And I don't think we need to make apologies. Oh, my church isn't growing real fast or my church is small. You know, that may just be the way it is. And as you said, here we have a church with probably a big budget, maybe impressive to look at on the outside. And that doesn't necessarily mean much of anything. Are we faithfully following Scripture? That's what matters. And, uh, you know, we can trust God then to do what he wants to do. But, you know, in our horrid American sense, we tend often to be very superficial uh, when it comes to the local church. I would agree. And now it's going to become real talk with Rick and Jerry instead of the Bible guys, because (laughs) um, there are you and I both have been in the job of training um, ministers, pastors, who, you know, people who are going to go out and serve Christ with the gospel. And um, I try, when I do this only when I'm, you know, when I got guys that, not in the classroom per se because of mixed company, but when I've got guys and they're, maybe they're over at our house for dinner or I'm talking to them individually, uh, I always try to warn them to be careful. A lot of those things and what you just mentioned, I mean, we have magazines that are just based on that idea. You know, some magazine, I'm not going to name it, it puts out top 100 fastest growing churches in America. Wow. And I believe it was J.D. Greer who said this. And if I'm, I hope I'm not attributing this quote to him and it's not him. Um, but I believe he, I, I heard him say it one time, he made the statement that he would look at that stuff and see that his church was there and the summit church is, you know, in those places. He said, but I realized what I was doing. I was looking at it like ministry pornography. This was, mm-hmm. I was looking at what's this other church doing that we're yeah. not. And it yeah, was yeah. like I was I was more lusting after that, not being happy with the with the flock that God has given me. And that's why Peter says, "Shepherd the flock that God's given yeah. you." Yes. Um, and so I tell my I tell guys, listen, don't buy into that. You may never look at pornography in your life, but you may be caught up in ministry pornography, mm-hmm. and you it will it'll stunt it'll stunt your love for your people. It'll stunt your love for your local church. So just don't even buy it. Don't don't subscribe to it. 
Um, just, just focus on, I mean, there's good ideas in those things about getting, you know, what's going on. Maybe I could take that idea, but so, so many times our trapping is to just buy into it and say, if I can do that at my church, it'll, it'll be what I want it to be. If only my church was this way, but we know how this works. It's never going to be, you're never going to be fully satisfied. That's why Peter says, shepherd the flock that God's given you. That is such a good point. And it, it turns the church into a competitive arena which is basically what the problem in Corinth was. Mm -hmm. So if I'm pastoring a church in a city and I'm looking, you know, across town and this church is just growing, then it's like, it becomes a competition. Okay. I'm going to have something bigger and better than they have. And then if I, if I get into that mentality, then the next year, it's going to have to be bigger and better than the previous year. And all of a sudden my focus is off of, if I can use a, high church phrase, my focus is off of the means of grace. My focus is off of the simplicity of what a church is to be doing when it gathers, worshiping God, praying, celebrating the ordinances, and then scattering out into the world. It just, it just turns the church into this gross corporate entity, which I absolutely despise. And I think that's what churches like the Laodicean one had, had gone into. And, and when you get into that, it's naturally going to turn your heart lukewarm because you're no longer engaged with Christ and, and the worship of him and, and, you know, let things happen as they will. So, um, yeah, some incredible lessons from this church. Yeah. One of the things I appreciate about our pastor here at, at at the Salem where I go, Pastor Kivett regularly prays for and with other local pastors. Um, yeah. And he's in a group where they meet regularly, pray for one another, pray with one another, uh, encourage one another. That's good. We're not, we're not, I mean, how are we in competition? The, the only competition we have is with the enemy yeah. um, where we, we want as many people as possible to come to be able to find and pursue life in Jesus. And if they do it at Salem, Absolutely, that's yeah. wonderful. If they do it at Calvary, any other church, Grace, whatever, that's great. Um, when so we see a success, and I think I wonder if that would change us. If if we saw, if we found out that the church down the street had thirty people genuinely come to faith in Christ this past month, are we going to celebrate that? Because we should, mm -hmm. um, because even though it was they were led at a different church by a different pastor and they're being discipled by that church, that doesn't, that's nowhere near a threat to us mm -hmm. um, because the gospel is being proclaimed and people are being saved. Yeah, that's, that's true. Even at the school where I, I teach and work, you know, we'll regularly have discussions with other institutions. And one of the things I tell them is, Hey, we're all, we're all doing the same thing. You know, if, if a student can be really helped maybe by a, a huge strength you have at your school, man, I'll refer them there. Mm -hmm. That doesn't matter. And, you know, and then it, it works vice versa as well. So yeah, we're, we're all doing the same thing and it doesn't matter who gets the credit. Um, it's God that matters. It's what people are doing that matter. And, you know, whatever God wants to straighten out among us, he can do that at the judgment seat. You know, right now we're just engaged in the same work and 
And I, I think the the spirit you just mentioned is is hugely important uh, in any venue of ministry. Yep. So I think the warning pulled out of this passage is local churches um, yeah. and pa- pastors who may be listening, make sure that your local church is involved. I'm gonna say the word is involving Christ in everything. Mm-hmm. Um, that is you. So so many times we can. Hey, this works in the business world. Okay, but are we involving Christ in that decision? Are we involving Christ in that work? Or are we trying to do it in our own strength? Do we think we've got it going on? Do we think we've got it all figured out? And we've just neglected Christ. Um, it's it's kind of like the New Testament parallel of what the people in, in the Old Testament, Joshua did when the Gibeonites came. They didn't consult God. They just made a rash decision based on their own feelings of, wow, these guys came and told us the world, you know, right now the known world is fearing us. Yeah, we'll, we'll do a treaty with you, but they never consulted God, and it wound up costing them. And I, I see the New Testament parallel here in the church of Laodicea where they have the success, they have this wealth, but they have totally removed Christ from the equation. Yeah, it's uh, years ago, Michael Horton wrote a book uh, called Christless Christianity, mm-hmm. which I really enjoyed. And he, he was pretty much making the same point. And the tragedy of it is, Churches and ministries, Christian ministries, can continue to function when they've basically booted Christ out the back door. Mm-hmm. And that's what he was lamenting in that book, and that's the condition we don't want to get into. Right. Well, as always, you can submit your questions via email, and that's at BibleGuysPodcast at gmail.com. You can always submit those questions on Instagram or Twitter at BibleGuysPod. Um, we are taking questions for what is going to be our season two finale. These are just random questions. Uh, some of the questions we've been getting have been, hey, Baba guys, what's your opinion on music versus, um, you know, the phrase secular versus sacred? What's your opinions on that? Um, and I look forward to hearing Jerry uh, share with us his uh, Alice Cooper favorite songs. Um, oh, no. I'm with you, man. Thanks, um, but, thanks a lot for throwing me under the bus. No, no, I'm good with it. We're going to have fun with that one. I thought we could just, we, we can't play them. Otherwise, they're going to, you know, shut this podcast down because of royalties. But we'll enjoy that. There's also other questions that are involving local church stuff and asking more pastoral questions. Really interested and exciting about those questions. But that'll be our season two finale before we take a break for season three. Got some really exciting things that I want to share with you soon about what season three is going to be. Um, but we'll wait on that. As always, um, you can, again, send your emails, uh, send your questions to us via email at bobbleguyspodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at bobbleguyspod or on Twitter at the same handle. For Jerry Hollinger, I'm Rick Kleinard. We'll see you next time.